Triskaidekaphobia is a long word meaning fear of 13. Lots of people seem to have it, according to The Economist in an article uh, called The World, and this is from 2013, talking about Triskaidekaphobia. But The Economist reported the Romans were spooked by 13, so were the Vikings, and to this day some people will not sit down uh, 13 to dinner. A teddy bear may have to be introduced to push the total up to 14. Some will not buy a house number 13 or sleep in a hotel room on the 13th floor. Some tall buildings, especially in Asia, don't have 13 stories at all. Their numbers go from 12 to 14. Since triskaidekaphobiacs are irrational, they may really believe that their hotel has no 13th floor and s- sleep peacefully on the one labeled 14. In ancient Persia, in an ancient Persian tradition, it was the 13th era after the dozen 1,000-year reigns of the 12 constellations, which was supposed to be full of chaos. Even now, modern Iranians cleanse their souls on Sizda Bidar, the 13th day of the year. Yet there are other cultures that associate 13 with good. The ancient Egyptians believed that on the last rung of a 13-step ladder to eternity, the soul would find everlasting life. The ancient Greeks, some of them anyway, thought Heracles' 12 labors were followed by a lucky 13th, his killing of the lion of Kitteron for King Thespius. Many modern Jews believe the collective souls of the Jewish people can be compared to the 13-petaled rose mentioned in the Zohar, a revered text for mystical followers of the Kabbalah school of thought. In Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 8, we read, For my thoughts, verse 8 of Isaiah 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And we can certainly believe that when we read about Triskaidekaphobians. As we've concluded our observance of the fall feast days, we've just come from observing a very powerful reminder of reality. But here we are today as, as I speak with advertisements for Halloween week horror specials on TV, uh, with aisles of, of weird and wacky costumes at Walmart, and jack-o'-lanterns popping up on porches of houses like dandelions in the spring. Have you ever thought about how thoroughly superstition has permeated man's history? Not just with, with the uh, Halloween, but with Christmas and in other ways. Have you ever thought about how much it influences you? How much it influences me? And every other person, even those that God has called and should understand better. One of the very first steps that God takes with us as he he walks us down the path of rehabilitation from our addiction to worldliness is is that step away from superstition. And, And he has to because we live in the age of superstition, which is the title for this sermon. As we move in our calendar year past then the vision of God's feast days, the fall feast days in particular, and the reality of his master plan into the darkness of paganism and delusion with Halloween and then Christmas and Easter, let's consider where we are in the age of superstition. And we'll begin by defining our terms. If you look at a dictionary or some type of a 
of, a, of an encyclopedia, you'll read something like this as to a definition of the word superstition. We read, uh, for one, a widely held but unjustified belief in supernatural causation leading to certain consequences of an action or event or a practice based on such a belief. A second definition of the dictionary to which I referred, a belief or way of behaving that is based on fear of the unknown and faith in magic or luck, a belief that certain events or things will bring good or bad luck. So that's a pretty broad definition, and let's see if we can flesh it out today then. We're going to go back and look at how God worked with Abraham and then with Israel and then the early New Testament church and the superstition they faced. And and that really gives us a backdrop to think about how we're affected by superstition and hopefully the impetus to take it seriously. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11 Genesis chapter 11, and we read verse 31. We read, And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. So that gives us an idea of where uh, geographically where where Abraham came from. I want to read a little bit about uh, this area and what it was like in terms of superstition in that area. This was the southernmost portion of ancient Sumer, which was called Chaldea, and the most important Sumerian city, according to this uh, BibleHistory.com reference, the most important Sumerian city was located on the western portion of the Euphrates River. It was called Ur. The land of Chaldea was very wealthy in its time. Some historians say that Egypt, with its grand pyramids, could not compare to the riches of Chaldea. And Ur was the wealthiest city. Under the heading of daily life, it says, There has been much understood about daily living in ancient Mesopotamia. The great ziggurat of ancient Ur was built by King Ur-Namu, who ruled the area of ancient Ur around 2100 B.C. Archaeologists estimate that there were approximately 24,000 people living in the city of Ur during the time of Abraham. The people of ancient Mesopotamia worshipped many gods, and the people of Ur worshipped their chief god named Nana, the moon god. The people of Ur lived in one of two main areas in the city, a religious place or the common district. The religious sacred place, it goes on to say, was in a strategic location of the city protected by strong walls. The place was dedicated to the worship of the moon god, Nana, and it was in this area that the ziggurat was located. There were also other great temples made of stone. There was a sacred area where people brought their gifts and offerings to the Nana, the moon god. They would also bring their contributions and pay their taxes in this place because Nana was believed to be their protector. There have been excavations in this area with recordings on stone tablets of people with gifts and taxes, and these tablets were kept in the temple within the sacred place. So we get a sense of the uh, pagan worship, particularly toward the moon god Nana, as was mentioned there. And we see, if we go to Joshua 24, Joshua 24, we have a mention of, of Joshua back to this time and the false gods that were worshipped. False gods, in other words, it was superstitious because these gods were meaningless. They did not exist. 
and yet they were given meaning. They were given weight. Uh, Joshua chapter 24. Joshua 24. And we read in his final speech to the Israelites, he said, verse 2, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants, and gave him Isaac. So, he acknowledges that the Israelites came from a place through Abraham where the worship of other gods was the norm, the, the superstitious worship of false, meaningless, not real gods was the norm. Uh, let me, I just want to read a couple references uh, regarding Babylon, which was associated with Ur, same part of the same region, a sister city. Um, uh, first of all, there are a number of superstitions surrounding the number 13 that date back to at least 1700 B.C. in the area of Babylon. For example, in the ancient Babylon, Babylonian code of Hammurabi, dating to about 1772 B.C., the number 13 is omitted, omitted in the list of laws. So there was a special superstition regarding the number 13. Also associated with uh, the paganism and superstition of Babylon was um, a worship of, uh, of December 25th, or the importance of December 25th. Again, uh, reading from a reference here, December 25th was an important date for the Babylonians. It was a day of celebration, gifts, cutting tree, and decorating it, a day uh, very similar to the Christmas, of course, as we know, as it's celebrated today. Nimrod, or Tammuz, and his aliases are also attributed as sun god and also the god of the forest. It was in his honor that December 25th was celebrated, the day of his birth, uh, not obviously death, as in Passover, as we understand with Christ. And you'll find a lot of the uh, pagan, pagan superstition uh, is attached to the day of one's birth, whether it's a particular god or a king or an individual, as the day of that day, that particular day having a great deal of meaning for an individual. This is something that we find across pagan cultures. Um, going on, this connects with the worship of the sun god Mithras, the sun deity. His birthday, Natalis Solus Invicti, means birthday of the invincible sun. It came on December 25th at the time of the winter solstice when the sun began its journey northward again. Pagan peoples were overly concerned with life and fertility, and they saw life fading in the darkness of winter and so held festivals in honor of and to beckon back the sun to give life and light to the earth once more, to be reborn, and special emphasis was given to that time of birth. Um, Isaiah chapter 47, Isaiah chapter 47, let's turn there. And we read God's response to all of this. Now, you can read the whole chapter. It's talking about the humiliation of Babylon. I want to jump in uh, at verse 12. We read Isaiah was, was inspired to prophesy. He says, Stand now with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. 
You are wearied in the multitude of your counsel, counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. Behold, they shall be as stubble, the fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. So we find very early on there was this desire from on the part of mankind to worship the moon and the sun and the stars of heaven that God had created for signs and seasons, but not to be worshipped. And so uh, we find this is a, an ongoing thread in human the human experience. Now, I wanted to highlight another interesting uh worship or another interesting superstition that had to do with the the horseshoe take it just a couple moments another belief again i'm reading from this uh, same reference another belief exists that the horseshoe because of its crescent shape has the ability to ward off evil in ancient europe and prior to the chaldeans this crescent shape represented the various moon goddesses which were signs of protection good luck and fertility and could protect against a curse from the evil eye So now today we have some people who still continue the superstition of hanging a lucky horseshoe over a door. And I'm not always sure, as I look and have done a little bit of research here, it seems as if in some cultures the horseshoe should be pointing up to catch all the good luck. In other cases, it should be pointing down to uh, shower that good luck on other on people. And uh, there's confusion all the way around. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Now, there are other symbols that were born out of the, the earliest superstitions of mankind, uh, reflecting that worship of the creation rather than the creator. And we find that Paul mentions this here in Romans chapter 1. This, this thread of history of superstition Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So in other words, we can understand the greatness and the glory of God when we look at his creation. But we don't give glory to the creation, we give it to the creator. But he says here, even again, verse, in verse 20, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So Paul acknowledges here of man's proclivities towards superstition. I say superstition as a word that actually describes this idea that man has of some weight or importance or bringing good favor or bad favor upon an individual because of some inanimate object and that which is which is not reality and yet that has been man's proclivity since since the beginning so let's let's move forward to Israel because i i said that when god begins to work with people he has to bring them out of superstition out of this meaninglessness 
And out of this special regard for something that is not real, not meaningful, has no bearing on, uh, on blessing or cursing, but yet uh, God had to deal with it with the ancient Israelites. So Exodus chapter 7, when you flip through Exodus, and particularly in regard to the plagues, you see that God was taking a hand in breaking the spell of superstition that had bound the Israelites just as it had the Egyptians. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 4, we read, as we break into this speech here, we said, we read, But Pharaoh will not heed you, he said, so that I may lay my, my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. And then you have these plagues that one by one uh, took a, a, a shot at these false gods that, that were part of the superstitions of, of Egypt. Uh, we flip forward to chapter 11 and verse 9. We see here, finally, just before the Israelites then were, were allowed to leave, the Lord said to Moses, verse 9, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So God had a purpose in bringing out the Israelites as he did. And in fact, as he gives the, these Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, he addresses this issue right away with the commandments. Exodus chapter 20 And verse 1, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And the first commandment had to do with superstition. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. You, You shall not invent gods out of trees, out of the sun, out of the stars, or constellations that form uh, shapes and then the skies. You should not make gods out of anything. You should not make gods out of, out of individuals, out of people. Some of the ancient rulers were demigods. In other words, they were considered to be a, a, an avatar of, of, of a particular god, whether it's the pharaoh in Egypt or the sun god or, or what have you. The second commandment, he said, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Don't bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I won't share your worship of me, because these are, these are meaningless. They're not real. And they will do you no good. Visiting, he says, then the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who keep, love me and keep my commandments. And then even the third commandment about taking his, not taking God's name in vain, not taking it and, uh, and, and even mixing it and having a, a syncretistic, uh, worship, mixing a worship of God with the, these false superstitions. Now, if you go to Leviticus, if we keep flipping forward, we find that this is specifically mentioned in regard to the Egyptians. When we read in Leviticus chapter 18, he says in verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God, according to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. 
And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do, nor shall you walk in their ordinances. Uh, I was uh, doing some reading and ran across some interesting Egyptian superstitious customs. Here's one about umbrellas, about opening umbrellas. We have... Uh, in our culture, there is this superstition, at least that some people have, that you shouldn't open an, an umbrella inside a house or a building, or it's bad luck. Well, in ancient, in ancient Egypt, it was believed by some that opening an umbrella indoors would bring bad luck. The origins of this superstition, uh, this article says, are not totally agreed upon, but some say it can be traced back to the early Egyptians. Back then, umbrellas protected people, mostly nobility or religious leaders, from the heat of the sun, not from the rain, and were thought to ward off spirits who might do them harm. To open one inside or even in the shade would offend the god of the sun. It was also believed that the Egyptian goddess Nut enveloped the sky like a huge umbrella. The beautiful man-made umbrellas were fashioned with peacock feathers and papyrus and represented the goddess. Because of their religious significance, they were usually held only over the noble classes. The shadow that surrounded the person underneath the umbrella was considered sacred, and if someone other than the nobility stepped on this space, it was considered sacrilegious. It goes on, this article does, to say, oddly enough, the Babylonians considered it an honor for anyone to step inside or into the shadow of a king's umbrella shade. So, different place, a different superstition. How about the superstition of walking under a ladder? I'm sure you've heard of that one, and I always thought it was a pretty good idea not to walk under a ladder if someone was uh, uh, on the ladder painting and might drop the paint bucket on you. But the Egyptians actually had their own uh, superstition about the latter. Um, it says, another origin of this superstition, that is walking under a ladder, uh, dates back to ancient Egypt. The Egyptians believed strongly in the power of the pyramids. Even a ladder leaning against the wall symbolized a pyramid because of its triangular shape. If someone walked under it, they believed that the power of the sacred pilgrim, uh, pyramid was, was broken. Uh, goes on this this uh, resource to uh, talk about birthdays in ancient Egypt. Again, the day of one's birth having special meaning. Um, in early civilizations, let's see here. Um, Ptolemy V it begins to talk about Ptolemy, the ever living, the beloved of Ptah, the son of the two brother gods, was born on the fifth day of the month Dios, and this day was in consequence the beginning of great prosperity and happiness of all men and women, according to one proclamation. Uh, Ptolemy V was an ancient Egyptian king, and it was common in his day for kings and rulers to have their horoscopes made by astrologers, and their birthdays were considered very important omens of the future. There was a special um, emphasis to the day of one's birth as uh, in a number of ways, how it uh, was auspicious in terms of good or bad that will come upon a person, and that's why even today we have certain of our birthday customs, the well-wishing and the even uh, candles and special meals and all that, are all associated with bringing good luck upon that person because that particular day has a special meaning for them that will impact them greatly. And uh, so you want to do certain things that will, that will acknowledge and uh, will open that doorway into their, into their future in a positive way. It, it's, again, 
It's all part of the special emphasis on the day of one's birth that comes from ancient paganism. Uh, from, for the average citizen in Egypt, um, this article says, in Egypt, households of the same period, birthdays were celebrated similarity. Sim- similarly, a part of the family budget was set aside to buy birthday garlands and animals for sacrifice, just as we might plan to spend a certain sum for balloons, party hats, and ice cream cake. Um, one more with in regard to Egypt. Uh, in ancient Egypt, when a couple got married, it was traditional to give them a four-leaf clover. So you have the superstition of the four-leaf clover, which was a blessing of their union and a representation of their undying love for one another. So four-leaf clover, some say, even goes back to uh, ancient Egypt, or at least the, the, some of the superstitions date back to that, to that time. Joshua chapter 24. Let's, let's go back and read a little bit more from Joshua 24. We read the first part of the of the chapter, and I, I'd like to move further down in the text here to verse 13, where we read we read this: "I have given you a land." He says, verse uh, verse 13: "I have given you a land for which you did not labor, speaking of the Israelites and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Now, therefore, he says, verse 14, he says, therefore." Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Because this superstition is a pressure that has has been there from the beginning, from the earliest times of mankind's existence, when he was cut off from God, he sought to make for himself other gods because we have this innate desire in us to to act, to know the unknown and to Im, actually to impute uh, uh, with the, the, the some greater purpose to what's happening happening to us physically and uh, to look to the the spirit realm the beyond that we can't see and and so this has been part of mankind's a threat of mankind's uh, false religion from the very beginning and and so he goes on he says uh, serve the Lord, the latter part of verse 14. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. He says, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will not be superstitious. We will only look to, to God as the one who protects us as the one who cares for, for us, as the one who teaches us. But that's not the story of what happened to ancient Israel, unfortunately. Let's just flip forward just a few pages to 1 Samuel chapter 4, and, and we see how the Israelites fell into superstitious thinking. 1 Samuel chapter 4 where they syncretized the thinking, they mixed up the thinking of Egypt and Ur and Babylon with the symbols that God had given them. So we see 1 Samuel chapter 4, and we read in verse 1, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. 
Then the Philistines put themselves in battle, a battle array against Israel, and when they had joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. So when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And look what they said. They said, Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, which the Ark was a... Was, was built to serve God, to worship God. It was made for that purpose, but they used it in a superstitious way, as if it had power, special power, to be able to determine their future and determine their, uh, how the battle would go. Well, the ark was, was only just physical. It was God who was, was the one who would either bless them and bring them success or not, but they imputed, again, superstitiously, special power to the ark. Now, where did that come from? Well, that's the way of thinking of superstition that goes right back through human history, as I've been saying. But in this case, they used it with with the ark. They said, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hands of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who dwells between the Caribbean and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And they were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. So they they associated the ark with God, not in terms of of a true worship of God, but as if as if, as if it truly represented a God with its own powers. And they said, verse seven. They said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. So they they associated the Israelites, or they assumed the Israelites to have these multiple gods like they did, a god of the city, a god of different cities. Sometimes the same gods were worshipped in the, in, in the same, in different places, but with a different god given preeminence because it had been lucky for them, according to their thinking. And whereas that, after a time, that god, and we see through history, wore out his welcome, and different gods seemed to be more lucky. And so they had a god of a city, different gods, certain pantheons, a god of the hills, a god of the forest, a god of the mountains, and a god even of the elements of the of the earth and of of water and of fire. And so this was the world in which they lived. These were the superstitions in which they were soaked, and these are the superstitions that the Israelites were tainted by. We see verse uh, Jeremiah chapter seven. Jeremiah chapter 7, we heard a mention of Shiloh, which had a, a special meaning because it was a place where the ark was kept. When the Israelites began to associate a special meaning with the temple apart from God, superstitiously, what do we see was said here? Jeremiah was inspired to say, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1, he said, 
the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. This is what God says. Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Don't put trust in the temple, this physical building. Put trust in the God who has saved you. Do not trust in these lying words saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. But instead, if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his, and his neighbor, don't oppress the stranger, and, and so on, he says, that's what will bring you blessings. I want to jump down to verse 10. Uh, verse, uh, verse 8. Will you steal, or I'm sorry, verse 8 then, Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord." But verse 12, but go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. You, you, you're not going to uh, give special uh, credence or, or special power to a place. Go look at Shiloh and see what happened there. He said, and ultimately the same with, with the temple, where the temple was destroyed. And so, we, as we, as we think about this, we can recognize the point for us that we have to be careful that we don't, um, uh, give special, uh, superstitious weight or power to a place, to, to a, to a building, um, to any type of physical objects, objects, because God is in heaven. God is not a, a building. God is not a place. And uh, God is not some sort of a physical object, or uh, and it, it, we should not give special uh, special weight to any of this. Now, Israel very quickly became full of superstitions as the generations went by. I'm going to give you a couple of scriptures. You you read in Deuteronomy chapter 12, just briefly. I'm going to go very quickly now, but Deuteronomy chapter 12. God commanded the Israelites to destroy all the places, verse 2, where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You find this green tree which represented anciently immortality, the lie of the immortal soul. And it represented it for the ancient cultures, and they gave special weight to it. And the Israelites adopted the customs that rep, that were the that were uh, could, that were held by those around them, and we see this green tree again and again uh, mentioned again and again. First Kings chapter fourteen. First Kings chapter fourteen. I'm going to flip very quickly here if I can move move quickly. First uh, Kings fourteen and verse twenty three. Here we read about Rehoboam's time, and we read verse 23, For they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, and wooden images on, on every high hill and under every green tree. These wooden images, these, these, these phallic symbols that uh, were part of the worship system, in this case, worshiping fertility. And, and that was a big part of the, 
the ancient superstitions as well. And we find that symbol has been replicated over time, just like the Christmas tree has been, or the green tree, I should say, has been replicated in the modern, uh, the modern, uh, celebration of, of Christmas, the day of the birth of the sun god. So here you find that day of a, a birth emphasized, given special weight, paired with immortality of the soul, uh, false idea re- represented by the, by the Christmas tree, and then, associated with with Christ. What a convoluted, uh, absolutely pagan and anti-God idea uh, piled upon idea. We see this is, is mentioned in a number of places. First Kings, Second Kings, chapter sixteen, verse four. We read again about sacrificing on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Second Kings seventeen and verse ten. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every uh, every green tree. Second Second Chronicles twenty eight verse four meant the same thing and mentioning that green tree. So we find we find that there are uh, a multitude of places that mention these superstitions that are so much a part of our culture today. Isaiah chapter 2, we read about superstitions from the east and the practicing of, of divination, uh, which again directly contradict the first and second, even third commandments. Isaiah chapter 57, Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, and verse 5, we read here, well, verse 3, let's begin in verse 3. But come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot, whom do you ridicule, ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression? This is talking about the idolatry and the superstition uh, in Israel. He says, offspring of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys, even talking about child sacrifice, that horrific practice that gave special luck and good fortune, the idea was, to the the killing of one's own, uh, own, own child and offering them to one of these false, absent, not real gods. And yet this was part of what they, of what they did. Jeremiah has a number of scriptures as well. Jeremiah 2 mentions the green tree in verse 20. And Jeremiah 3 as well. And Jeremiah 3, a couple places in Jeremiah 3. And of course Jeremiah chapter 10, which we turn to when we, we deal with and we, we, we point to the paganism that's our, our current holidays are our cultural holidays, I'll say our uh, religious holidays in this country, and throughout the world that has adopted false Christianity, they, that they embrace. And Jeremiah chapter 10 uh, addresses that. Now, other places we can read 2 Kings 17, how this was part, these were part of the sins that sent Israel into captivity. But if we go to the time of the New Testament church, we find that superstition still was part of their of their world. Jer- uh, let's go to the New Testament and look at Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Imagine what it would have been like to live in the times of the first era of the New Testament church. 
and to confront the superstitions that they confronted. Now, we can certainly identify the superstitions to which I've been referring. These were part of the, the I'll say, the Gentile world, and uh, we can understand that. But within Judaism, they we can say, well, they didn't... Uh, They didn't use a green tree at the time of Christ or phallic symbols, but they had their own superstitions that they had built into their customs. Mark chapter 7, Christ dealt with this. Verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with, with defile, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. In other words, this was a superstition because they had this this tradition from the elders that was that was taken from um, certainly the scriptures, but it was but it was extrapolated. And so they had built a superstition around the washing of the hands, and as it goes on, even other objects. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat, verse 4, unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels and couches. And then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, saying, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? You might say the superstitions of the elders, because they thought that those traditions, those ways of doing things, would bring them grace with God, would bring them closer to God, would bring them into a a better relationship with God. But what did God think of them? He said, verse 6, He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, But their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. So he he really nailed it. He really uh, put a very strong point to it that they were giving weight to something that was not meaningful to God. We could say the same thing with uh, circumcision that had become a superstition. We, we, we understand that it was commanded by God of Abraham as a sign between him and Abraham. And, and we understand that very clearly. And it was, a, uh, it was as, as a health matter, it was one of the statutes. But we find in Galatians chapter 5 that Paul dealt with it, and, and he recognized that they... Unfortunately, many of the Jews of that day gave a special weight to circumcision, and uh, he had to address that, as did the New Testament church, say, look, this is you're, you're putting a, a weight upon circumcision, and you're missing the point. You're not obeying the covenant. In other words, you're not close to God. You're, you're not allowing this special um, blessing that you have to be one of the descendants of Abraham, to, to prompt you to worship God. Instead, what you're doing is you're having this particular uh, ritual, this particular, particular physical act, this particular physical, uh, 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 let's say even for them it was a, a special uh, a ceremony, something that was done, and you're allowing that to have a weight all by itself. And um, so this is why it had to be addressed. Another one, uh, briefly, is not pronouncing Yahweh or Yehovah, um, 
the Tetragrammaton, YHVH. I want to read, this is from a, uh, a website, the Jewish World website, uh, a comment about this. During the first and second centuries A.D., a superstition regarding the use of God's name took hold among the Jews. The Mishnah, a collection of rabbinic commentaries that became the foundation of the Talmud, states that one who pronounces the divine name as it is spelt has no portion in the future earthly paradise promised by God. What was the origin of such a prohibition? Some claim that the Jews considered the name of God too sacred for imperfect humans to pronounce. Eventually, it says, there was a hesitancy even to write the name according to one source that fear arose because of a concern that the document in which the name was written might later end up in the trash, resulting in a desecration of the uh, divine name. And it goes on from there talking about the Encyclopedia Judaica uh, describing this uh, this this uh, tradition. So even the, the the name of God and the the pronouncing of it, they had turned into a really a superstitious thing, believing that by pronouncing it, you would actually bring ill upon yourselves yourself, and and forgetting the whole point of the worship of God and instead placing great weight upon the pronunciation of a, of a name. So, how about us today? How about us today? What are some modern superstitions, and, and how can we unthinkingly fall back into them? Um, I was doing some reading on this, and I ran across the one uh, about sneezing. Where did the, uh, the God bless you after sneezing come about? Well, in the Bible, again, I'm reading from a book about superstitions, and it says in the Bible, we read that God breathed into Adam and he became a living being or nephesh or soul in our English vocabulary. But the development of sneezing superstitions came about as a perversion of that understanding. Ancients believed that breathing in was breathing in life, and sneezing was a swift release of that essence or soul. So if the soul left the body through a sneeze, it was presumed the individual would die without his soul. The mysteries and superstitions surrounding sneezing emerged from this point. And that's why blessing people after they sneeze is a very common superstition that's practiced all around the world. World. Um, early Greeks, Romans, and Egyptians, uh, in terms of sneezing, they believed when someone sneezed, it was either a sign of good fortune or an omen of bad luck. One way or the other, it had some import. Uh, they believed that a sneeze was their own personal prophet, forewarning them of danger and forecasting future good and evil. Um, additionally, one would be congratulated upon sneezing because the evil spirits were freed from embodiment. It was also believed that at the time, uh, that at that time, that the sneeze during a conversation revealed the truth of a statement. So from that emerged the "bless you, God bless you," um, different blessings that uh, oftentimes people will do after somebody sneezes, thinking they're doing something that's very appropriate, when in reality they're simply following an ancient pagan tradition that uh, uh, rests on uh, these pagan origins. How about knocking twice on wood? Well, the origin of this well-known superstition, according to the same reference, dates back to a time when some cultures believed that gods lived in trees. So to ask the gods for a favor, people would lightly tap on the bark of the tree. Then to say thank you when the favor was granted, a person would go back and knock lightly again on the same tree. 
So knock on wood comes from this, this ancient pagan superstition. Uh, so that's just the tip of the iceberg uh, when you study into the origins of the superstitions regarding the cross. You can see that uh, crossing one's fingers even, for example, is considered very, uh, very good luck. And, uh, and from one reference I, I have here, in the pre-Christian era, crosses uh, symbolized power and unity. And the middle of the cross represented all that was good. People made wishes on the midpoint of the cross to ward off evil so that nothing would get in the way of the wish they wanted to fulfill. So then you read about the origins of crossing your fingers and how that applied to even the cross that has its all of its own superstitions. We know about Christmas and Easter and Valentine's Day and, of course, of course Halloween. That is upon us as I speak now. And even again, the all the whole uh, system of of uh, well wishing that goes around the day of one's birth. In, in in reality, whether we realize it or not, all these customs all blend together. Even that of the birthdays. And we, when we if we wish somebody happy birthday, we might as well be wishing them uh, Merry Christmas because it, it still gives it implies a certain particular. Uh, uh, meaning to that day of one's birth that is not there according to the, according to the Bible. We read in the Bible about the day of one's death being the day of, of, of real success in our life. And we read uh, certainly the Passover gives us a living example of how important that, um, uh, that that is as opposed to no reference to a, any special day of Christ's birth. And uh, again, that's just scratching the surface, but but these things all blend together in a superstitious way. Now, what about us? So we, by the way, we have a couple of references that describe in more detail in our church literature this this idea about the day of one's birth and and how we can unknowingly fall into a special recognition in a way that is is really not not godly. Um, one is entitled Birthdays, a Celebration for Christians or Not, and it's from the Living Church News 2018, January-February edition. And there's another, uh, another, another resource you can read, Birthdays in God's Church, again from the Living Church News, Living Church News from 2011. And, uh, so there's a lot to, to learn about, um, about these superstitions. But, but I want to, before I, I conclude, I want to take it to take one more step and and think about this in principle. So if we recognize that superstition is that idea, is that concept of giving way to something that is does not have power or strength, but yet we 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 treat it that way, then we have to ask ourselves: Are there other ways in our life? In which we are actually being superstitious, if we want to be want to be want, want to be uh, honest about it. So, for example, how about our prayers? How about prayers? Well, there are some people who recite specific prayers, believing that this is the way to pray to God. Um, for example, many parents teach their children to say uh, at night, Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. 
And, and the next prayer they might learn might be the, 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 the so-called Lord's Prayer from the model prayer taught by Christ and, and recorded in Matthew 6 and Luke 13. But, but they just repeat it and repeat it and repeat it as if that alone has special weight to bring us close to God simply by reciting the prayer, almost like, like the rosary or the Hail Mary prayer. And if we look at the early church false fathers, we see this is what they did. They they created prayers. Um, the Hail Mary prayer, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. That's repeated by some, again, as if it has power. Does it draw one closer to God? No. Does, does any set of words draw one closer to God of and by themselves? No, not at all. In fact, isn't this what, what Christ addressed in Matthew chapter 6? When, he, when his disciples asked him how to pray, what did he tell them? He said, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. If we use vain repetitions, if we use meaningless words that we don't, we don't switch our we don't switch our mind into gear so that what we're, what we're thinking and praying and, and, and saying as we speak to God actually has meaning as opposed to simply just being something we're doing while our brain's in neutral because we're so used to pray for this person pray for that person pray for myself pray for my cat you know would we if we if it's just a matter of of, of a, a recitation of words that does not engage the mind and the heart then what are we doing but being superstitious? Because the time that we spend on our knees, thinking that it's somehow going to draw us closer to God, in, in that sense, by the, by the definition of superstition, applies. It's not drawing us closer to God. It's just an act that carries no weight except just maybe hurting our knees. So this is what I'm, I'm talking about. We, we have to think about what we do and, and, and analyze. Are we giving weight to our observance, to something that we're doing, something that we're involved in, or a tradition, as if it's going to bring us close to God, but yet we're, we're actually just going through the motions. We could say the same thing about the Sabbath there, right? We read about in Matthew 12 about how Christ had to had to deal with those who criticized him as to the fact that he that he plucked the, the heads of grain to eat because they had built an outward form that upon which they placed more emphasis than the meaning of the Sabbath itself which was to draw closer to God. What about us? Is our Sabbath routine is are our, the holy day observances routine? Um, Isaiah chapter 58 makes it clear in verse 13 that we are to be careful and we are to t- take, take thought as to how we observe God's Sabbath day. We read in verse 13 of Isaiah 58. I'll, I'll go ahead and read it to you. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath of delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and honor him. That's the point of this, not doing our own ways, not to find our own pleasure, speaking our own words. In other words, we're, we're trying to, to think of what we're doing as, 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 as giving us the opportunity to have a closer bond with God, as opposed to simply going through the motions of keeping the Sabbath. And, and we all know we can get into that mode, and so many people over the years have. 
where they're in the mode of keeping the Sabbath, or at least of not doing work on the Sabbath, just like they're in the mode of not eating pork, or or, or any of these things like this, or tithing, and, and yet it becomes rote, it, it becomes superstitious, and that they would continue to do it, or we could continue to do it just as a routine, as if it would bring us goodwill with God, when in reality it's not, if it's, if it's just a routine, if it's just something that we do as part of a, of a habit. We can read, we can read in Job chapter 1 how Job offered burnt offerings for his family continually. It says he was worshiping God, but, his, but he was doing it to even to try to bring God's goodwill upon his children, as if he could do that. Read Job chapter 1 and, and verse 5 in particular. It doesn't work that way. You know, and it doesn't work that way with us. If we just uh, drag our kids to church and, you know, dress them up, drag them there, have them sit through church and somehow expect that magic is going to happen because somehow, magically, they are going to have a, a relationship with God and a bond with God because we simply drag them there and drag them home, then we're mistaken. We can't, we cannot do that for them. In, in terms of simply just exposing them to Sabbath services, for say, for, for example. All we're doing is we're giving some, uh, you might say, a special superstitious weight just to the act of going to taking them to church. In reality, when we teach them God's way, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, when we rise up, when we sit down in our house and we're walking, if we teach them God's ways so that they take on an understanding of God's ways, that's a very different thing than the, I'll say, superstitious endeavor of simply just dragging them to church. So for the Israelites, the Israelites, the, the things they were taught were meant to teach them. The sacrifices were meant to teach them, not become superstitious rituals. The laws were meant to teach them, not to become just simply rituals upon which they could build greater fences around, as we see during the day of, of Christ, but to learn, learn to discern good from evil, just like for us. God's desire is for us to learn to discern good from evil. And to avoid meaningless habits of the world that simply, that simply replicate those, those patterns of thinking that are part of the history of the superstitions of the world. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We read 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6 and verse Begin here in verse 11. O Corinthians, he says, he says, we have spoken, uh, verse, uh, verse 14 again. Uh, let's begin in verse 11. We have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. He says, uh, now in return, I'm sorry, verse 12, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children. He says, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? So do we, are we bound to those around us through the customs of, 
that absorb them so that we're absorbed as well? Are we, are we fellowshipping? Are we co- comfortable with to the point that we actually begin to adopt the customs of those around us? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, and this is, this is our challenge, isn't it? This is where we need to, to ask God for guidance, ask God for discretion, ask God for, for understanding so that we can be able to separate ourselves from the superstitious thinking of the world around us and the world that has been around all of our forefathers all the way back through time. A world that is unreal. A world that puts special weight on physical objects that don't exist, on traditions or ways of doing things that make no difference whatsoever. But he says, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. That's what we want. We want to draw close to him. We want to be like him. We want to reflect him. And not, not just in for show, but in our thinking. We have a real God. And the things that we do, the traditions that we keep, the habits that can mold us, those, those should reflect, ultimately, those should help us to reflect the mind of the real God. And that should happen each and every day of our life.